Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our Lord's beautiful statement in verse 8, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, sets before us even tonight the grandeur and beauty of a heart that's attuned to the frequency of God, one whose radio, if you will, is set to tune in the frequency that God would desire our lives to be built around. And as we gather together tonight, those who love the Lord, those who are the called according to His purposes, we can appreciate the fellowship that we enjoy and look forward to an opportunity in addition to song and prayer and to surround the table, but to a study of His holy and divine will. As I mentioned this morning, we will continue our series of lessons dealing with the church and seeking to better understand its identity. But as we do so, we already have come a great distance. Our interest, our fervor has been no more nor less than to better appreciate the church as it's defined and described in the Holy Scriptures, and we will look at a fourth installment in that series tonight. As I mentioned, we will consider the name. What is in a name? As you can see, this is the fourth part in that series. And by way of introduction, would you consider some of these ideas with me? Thoughts that I think will be relatively easy for you to appreciate with me. In a very simple way, we already have understood the fact that the church is a very basic and fundamental entity. It is unlike the civil government. It is unlike the home. It is a very basic presentation, that fundamental group of the saved, the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. So far we have learned that it was spoken of in prophecy, and what's more this morning, that there is but one of them. In so many instances, the world isn't happy to hear that answer, but that's what God has said, that there is but one body and hence but one church. But just as surely as one could well ask and answer that question, almost immediately... The question then comes, well, if there's only one, which one is the correct one? We noted this morning there were 635 denominations recognized in our land. So of that number, assuming at least one of them is correct, if any of them at all, which one is the one? Of all of those whom one might name, which one's the right one? Which one is the one heaven has decreed is acceptable? That is not a trivial question. In fact, I would submit to you that one's eternal destiny hangs upon answering it correctly. For our Savior purchased and bought but one church. He gave his life's blood for only one of them. We, being a member of all the others, would be useless from the perspective of eternity. It would be vain and immaterial, but to be a member of that body that he bought, that body, that kingdom that's his, oh, how pristine and beautiful that would be, and that our eternity would be such that, Paul said in Ephesians 5.23, Christ saves those in that body. And so for the lesson tonight, as well as the one next Lord's Day morning, let us ask the question, how could you identify the one true church? How could you rest assured and be absolutely confident that you have found it? Again, that's not a light question. Thankfully, we have all the answers we need. You and I have, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all information necessary that you and I need in order to identify it and to be sure of it. It's not guesswork. It is not a matter of, I think this is it. If one were to select out of that 635, you can check and be sure which one's the right one, if any. I would submit to you that we can be so thankful to God for His Holy Bible. You and I would have no idea of the answer were it not for His revelation. 
as the first lesson that we discuss in regard to that identity will have to do with the name. Does the name make any difference? Is it such that there's anything in a name? Well, I believe and suspect we each already know somewhat the answer to that. But in terms of identifying the church, think with me, if you would, about some of these concepts. Oh, so challenging. In, all, in fact, oh, so comforting. Is there anything in a name? Of course there is. Isn't it an amazing thing that as a young man and a woman, as they are preparing, they are recognizing that a baby is soon on the way, they may spend weeks, if not months, selecting a name for that baby that's soon to come. That name means something to them. It's not an arbitrary matter just to pick the first thing that comes to mind, is it? What's more, not only in regard to a coming baby, Think about the other ways in our society that we understand the significance of a name. Did you realize that the major companies, those that manufacture items that, say, may appear in a Walmart or in some other retail outlet, those who design it may spend months just figuring out the name that goes with that product because they understand that if the name is not a good one, no matter how useful the product might be, it's not going to sell sufficiently. They select a name that corresponds to the characteristic of the object in most instances, but the name is chosen very, very carefully. Think about the automobile manufacturers. They like to choose names that are catchy. Names that will in fact beseech and appeal to the psyche of men and women so that they will be more apt to purchase them. Names are significant in many regards. In addition to all of that, May I submit to you that there are many other ways. Think about, for instance, an athletic team. Wouldn't you agree that the name is significant? When the Houston Oilers moved from the state of Texas and became our Tennessee Titans, do you remember the weeks that passed and there were contests on the radio in which they begged individuals to call in and suggest a new name? The name Oilers is not particularly pertinent for a Tennessee team. Texas has a lot of oil, but we don't have quite so much. A different name had to be chosen. What would have been the result had a name been chosen differently? The Tennessee Tiny Men wouldn't have worked very well. The Tennessee Tomatoes would have totally been unimportant. But the name Titan signifies power and great size and strength. They chose the name in a significant fashion. The name meant something. There are even countries in our world that are interested in changing their name. One of the Soviet republics has a name that's nearly impossible to correctly pronounce for most anybody in the world unless you live there. They've understood that if anyone is going to come to appreciate their country, the name needs to be pronounceable. The name is currently as nearly as I can pronounce. It's something to the effect of Krizich, K-R-Y-Z-Y-Z-J. That now is going to be, of course, changed if many of the people of that land have their way, and we can see why. To say all that is to say we understand that names are significant. But even in the Bible, we come to understand the same. Think about how often individuals' names were changed when their purpose, their mission, their direction in life changed. Back in Genesis chapters 11 and 12, we encounter a man named Abram, A-B-R-A-M. 
But it isn't long when we arrive at chapter 17 that God, by decree, changes his name to Abraham. That word Abraham signifies father of many nations. And that was the promise that was to come upon Abraham, specifically stated in Genesis 22:18. The name change was significant. By the way, isn't it also true that you could mention Sarai in exactly the same way? Abram's wife was Sarai, S-A-R-A-I. However, in chapters 18 and 19, the God of heaven changed her name as well to Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. Again, she was to be that one through whom Isaac, the son of promise, would be born. And what's more, those name changes were those decreed by God. It wasn't Abram and Sarai that chose to change their name. God did it. Consider yet another example. Later in the book of Genesis, we encounter the fact that Abraham's grandson was named Jacob. And we appreciate the interesting story of he and his twin brother Esau. But isn't it interesting that in chapter 32, God changed his name to Israel. And isn't it true that we to this day have a country named Israel? To this day, we understand the nature of the Old Testament reference to the children of Israel. God had a reason for changing his name. For you see, the word Israel means power with God. And so it was that Jacob, as he wrestled with that angel and the name was changed on that occasion, he did recognize the fact that he did have power with God for the promise given to Abraham was also given to him. And he would indeed be the father of a large multitude, the father of those twelve tribes of Israel, one of them, of course, being the one through whom the Christ child would be born. Name changes are certainly insignificant. It happened not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Isn't it interesting that on one occasion in the latter part of John chapter 1, our blessed Savior, when he encountered a man who there was a fisherman, he changed his name. Do you remember that the very one who was called Simon, Simon Peter, he, Jesus said, Thou shalt be called Cephas. And that word means a stone. And we recognize the word Peter associates with it. We remember then that this one known as Peter was in some senses a major player in the early days of the church in Acts chapters 1 through 12. Notice the Lord had changed his name. Perhaps one final example, and that will be sufficient to illustrate again the point. What about Saul? Not the Old Testament Saul, but the New Testament one. Saul was a name, you see, that was related to Hebrewism. That is, consideration of the law of Moses. That man named Saul was a devout defender of Judaism, wasn't he? In fact, he hated Christ and the church. He even imprisoned Christians. He even gave his consent when he put them to death. Case in point being Stephen in Acts chapter 7. However, when we arrive at Acts chapter 13, this man who was called Saul had already made that interesting trip on the road to Damascus. He had seen his Savior and he had obeyed. No longer was he a defender of the Old Testament law inasmuch as no longer did one live under it to be righteous. He was called Paul from that time forward. Not a name that corresponded to Judaism, but one that corresponded to his life in Christ. And he's the very one that wrote 13 books in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Names are important. There's no doubt about that fact. The name that one chooses to wear is 
greatly significant. To say all that points us then to recognize with regard to names and spiritual things, there is a fundamental principle that must be followed. It's the very principle that in fact was read in our hearing just a few moments ago. If we now appreciate the fact that names are significant, and if we are then interested in determining a name that would be approved by heaven for the church, the premise of Colossians 3.17 is the basic premise. Let us recall what that text informs us of. Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Paul, what was that? Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, that is, anything that's done, anything that's said in the name of religion, it must be done with the consent and authority of heaven, giving thanks and honor to God through Christ. Surely then the name that is chosen, the name that is selected, must obey that principle. And hence, we understand that since the things of God have been revealed in His Word, we should only seek to appreciate that the name ought to be found. It ought to appear by divine decree and be presented in the Holy Word of God. Let us then look somewhat further into that idea tonight. What about the name? There are many things that might be said, but I think the basic premise is extremely simple. Notice with me, if you would, pick any particular body of believers that might come to mind. Think about the name that is worn by that collective assembly. For us here, it's the Pippin Church of Christ. Others, it may be the Center Grove Church of Christ. It may be other churches of Christ. But yet, in addition to that, think about the names that other particular bodies wear. For instance, the Gainsborough United Methodist Church or the Columbia Baptist Church. And you can fill in with dozens and dozens of other examples. Every single example guarantees to have two parts. As I've noted on that screen on the wall to my left, one of the parts to that name is an identifier of the community in which that church assembles and labors. The Pippin Church of Christ, we assemble in the Pippin community of Putnam County. And in so doing, we meet here for worship. Our primary labors are centered here and branch outward in wherever directions around the world that they may in fact go. But this is where we assemble. This is where our building is. This is where we come together to participate in worship and other activities. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? One of the parts of a name will have to do with the community in which it in fact meets. What about the other part to the name? Having discussed Pippin, what about Church of Christ? Does that identify anything? That's a part of our name as well. Well, notice with me, not only is it a part of it, it is an extremely significant part of it. In fact, the other part to that name doesn't identify the community. It identifies the fundamental basic nature of that body of believers. Notice the very statements that can easily thus be made. Those examples I've listed, Pippin Church of Christ, Free Will Church of Christ, other churches of Christ, there's something extremely significant about that. And some of the points then that should be understood perhaps lead us to note this. Church of Christ, that preposition OF means that 
what follows is owned by what is represented. It's Christ's church. It's owned by him. It would appear that that easily satisfies the criterion found in Colossians 3.17. It does give credit and respect and glory to Christ as the one who owns that body. The Pippin Church of Christ, no man owns it. No human being is its director. It is Christ's church, Christ's body. And the same could well be said of some of those others whom we have understood and mentioned. But that does lead us perhaps to ask the following. What about some of those other names? And I have listed these for your consideration as well. We again are not interested in insulting or besmirching any, but to merely ask a question. Consider with me the Gainsborough First United Methodist Church. The first part of that name, the word Gainsborough, informs us of the community in which that organization assembles, doesn't it? It's in Gainsborough, the county seat of Jackson County. But what about the latter part, the First United Methodist Church? Where is the name of Christ in that? Where is the identifier that links it with the Savior? doesn't appear to be one. Doesn't that pose a problem by virtue of the premise of Colossians 3.17? Or consider another. What about the Stevens Street Baptist Church? Our interest is only to observe and to ask, where is the linkage that identifies that as the body of Christ? Where is the identifier? Where in the name? Does that make statements that relate to the character of the fact that it's owned by Christ? Stephen Street informs us where that congregation meets and assembles, but notice the word Baptist identifies the mode of baptism. It doesn't have anything to do directly with the name of Christ. Might we observe then that you and I should be so thankful that within the friendly confines of the pages of the Word of God, we have statements and records that identify those names that perhaps heaven has approved, and you and I can rest certainly and confidently upon the usage of any or all of those names to perhaps see that more fully. Notice some of the passages in which those names appear. You and I have already observed even this evening that as we think about the characteristic of these names, let's be very careful to say the Bible nowhere gives one and only one name and demands that all congregations make use of it. You and I may be shocked by that, but that nonetheless is the thing that's revealed to us in the Word of God. Because note the following with me. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, as well as in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 1, Paul expressly made reference to the church of God in Corinth. Would thus it be appropriate and approved in the name of heaven for a group of believers to call themselves the community identifier, church of God? Certainly it would. However, so long as what took place in terms of worship, doctrine, and the things taught and practiced were in accordance to the New Testament in every respect, that would be a scriptural name. But yet consider another example. There is also the understanding in consideration of Acts 8, verse 1, and 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, simply the word church is employed. 
we should understand then that as Paul and the other inspired writers made reference to them, they again did not use that phrase that perhaps you and I are more accustomed to. But isn't it also comforting to read Romans 16, verse 16, where there in regard as he wrote that letter to the brethren in Rome, he said, The churches of Christ salute you. Is thus the name Church of Christ appropriate? Absolutely. For there were those in the first century that were wearing that name. And they did so apparently with all pride and in recognition of what that name represented. It's perhaps also understandable that in Hebrews 12 verse 23, yet by way of example another appears, the church of the firstborn. We should understand in terms of recognized wisdom that even though those various descriptions were entirely appropriate in the New Testament era, and so today they certainly still would be, the recognition of wisdom in the current culture in which we live would lead us to be wise. Typically, the church of God is a name reserved for a various set of usages by those who have agreed to a certain set of beliefs. If those beliefs are not then those that are found in the New Testament, it wouldn't be wise for any devout and earnest set of believers to employ that name. For it associates to a group or to a set of beliefs that are not taught in the Bible. We understand that name, Church of Christ, has a history that runs back 2,000 years. A history that's deeply entrenched, for it is a name approved by the beautiful and powerful God of heaven you and I can wear with pride and wear in a confident and assurant way. To say all of these things, maybe we can briefly summarize the first part of our lesson this evening by saying, we would then be eternally wise to choose a name for the group, for the body of which we're a part, that does meet with divine approval. For oh, how sad it would be to arrive on the day of judgment and to hear Jesus say, I never knew you, but Lord, I was a member of the church. And only hear him say, well, it was not the church I bought. It wasn't the body of which I was the head and leader. You see, we must be certain to be a part of that body, the one that's his, and we should appreciate the power of the name that it wears. To say that, maybe, though, is to ask one more question. Just as certainly as one can speak about the name as it relates to the body of believers, what about the name that an individual Christian might wear? What about Randy Bybee? or any one of yourselves, what name should we individually wear? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? I might submit to you that there are many answers to that from the perspective of the world in which we live. There are some who, as we noted this morning, may well be, well, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Methodist. And, of course, we understand, again, the usage of those names Many, of course, are very sincere and earnest in their usage, and they give great homage and honor to the usage of those names. Our only question is, are those names scriptural? If so, where are they found? I might submit to you that we are not left to our own devices in even answering that question. What name must we wear? Let us turn to the Word of God. Let us let God answer that question for us. Our story begins deep in the heart of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 62, seven and a half centuries before the very birth of our Savior, God had revealed to the prophet Isaiah a very interesting thing. I would like to read that and then we'll return and make some remarks about it. 
in Isaiah chapter 62, verse number 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. As you and I have read and thought about the book of Isaiah, we understand the following. Isaiah spoke many things about the days of the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah from his perspective, and what's more, he revealed many things about the coming church. When we reach the 62nd chapter of that noble book, we by that point understand that Isaiah, through the nature and revelation of God, speaks about a day when the Gentiles would receive the righteousness of God. That's expressly stated. And let me, in fact, emphasize one more thing. When the Gentiles were to receive the righteousness of God, God through Isaiah promised, I will give a new name by which you will be called. Note several interesting points. Number one, this name was given by God. It was not given by man. It was not devised by the human family. God gave it. Notice, he also said when that name would appear. It would be when the Gentiles had received his righteousness. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. They took great pride in that fact, but through Isaiah, God said there's coming a day when the Gentiles receive my righteousness, and when that time comes, I will give a new name. And it's by that name that you will be called. Perhaps the question, what was that name? What was given? And when did God fulfill it? Go forward with me till we reach the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts, the 11th chapter. I'd ask you to note with me two verses to be found in that chapter. The first is verse 18. To briefly summarize the history that would have led us to that point had we read all of the intervening chapters, Jesus the Messiah was born. Ultimately, he gave his life at Calvary, and on that day of Pentecost, which now is history by the time we reach Acts 11, the church had been established. Now, when Acts chapter 10 comes before us, Cornelius, a Gentile, has been told the plan of salvation, and he's obeyed it. Now, as Peter rehearses the events of Acts chapter 10, he states the following in Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. There we have it. Through Isaiah, God had said, When the Gentiles receive my righteousness, I will give a new name. In Acts 11:18, as Peter rehearsed these matters, the Gentiles had received God's repentance unto righteousness. They had then received the character of God's promise. If God then was true to his word, it was time for him to give a new name. Did he? Eight verses later, God kept his promise. Eight verses later, Acts 11, verse 26. Let us read that together. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Eight verses later, precisely when God said he would, he fulfilled his promise and he gave the disciples a name. A name by which they had not been called before. It was the new name I prophesied in Isaiah 62. Where was it, God? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. There was the name. And there is still no other. 
We see then that as God has given his divine decree to, in regard to the name that you and I should wear with confidence and pride and assurance, it's the name Christian. Isn't it amazing then that as we understand that word, that word Christian is also appropriate. C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Christ is the first six letters. We are purchased and bought by Him. We belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. We are His. Did we not read in that interesting text, Free are not your own, you are bought with a price. As those believers then who have obeyed the gospel, Christ owns us. We belong to Him. It's entirely right then that we wear His name. Isn't it interesting then that with regard to that name, the fact that it's Christian, return back with me to the principle of Colossians 3.17. Does it satisfy? And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. It works so beautifully, doesn't it? The name we wear individually honors not me, but Christ, the one who owns me, the one who directs me, the one who guides me. And as much as that's stated, we have then given a complete answer to that. On occasion, you will hear some make the contention or claim then that the name Christian was given in derision. It was given as an insult. That isn't true. Isaiah had said again that it would be given by God himself, and it was never given as an insult originally. Oh, it may be true that in the intervening centuries some have insulted others by calling them a Christian, but as the name was originally given, it was no insult. In fact, notice the pride that's associated with it. In Acts 26, verse 28, as Paul stood before that man named Agrippa and preached to him the blessed gospel of Christ, Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, Agrippa was a man of authority, a man of great stature in civil matters. He would never have used that word had it been an in, in, in intent by Paul to get him to wear an insulting name. Apparently, in his message that day, Paul preached the grandeur and pristine beauty of the name Christian. And in so doing, Agrippa was touched. Almost, Paul, that persuadest me to be a Christian. Or in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, Many chapters later in the New Testament. But in that five-chapter book of 1 Peter, in which the discussion surrounds the topic of Christian suffering, notice in that verse he says that it is a glorifying thing. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. To glorify God in the name Christian. We ought never to let someone convince us that name was given as an insult or given in a way to make people feel lowly and bad. God gave that name to those disciples in Antioch and we proudly wear it to this day. But might we, might we observe as well that in the New Testament, what about those other names? Where are they to be found? Are they to be found at all? Where is the heaven authority to use the name Episcopalian? or Presbyterian, where is that found anywhere? I might submit to you it isn't. It's true the name Baptist does occur, but it identified a man named John. It was never used to identify any follower of Christ. For John even himself admitted, I must decrease, he must increase. John 3 as well as John chapter 5. The very thought then of these names perhaps poses one final question of the evening. 
And that question is this. We touched upon it this morning in our Bible study hour. In Genesis 5 verse 2, the notion that their name, Adam and Eve, family name was given as Adam, what might we appreciate concerning the church? We know that in the New Testament the church is presented as the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. We understand that the wife wears proudly the name of her husband. Might I ask anyone present tonight, husbands, how would you respond if your wife came home one evening and said, I want to wear the name Jones. I just feel like changing my name to Jones. I believe I can happily say not a husband here would be happy to hear that. And in fact, a great argument and contention would arise. The husband doesn't want you to wear someone else's name. He wants you to wear his name. Shouldn't Christ want us to wear his name or his bride? It must bring a tear to the eye of heaven when men choose to wear names that are not the name of the bridegroom. To wear names that men have devised to wear names that honor men or names that honor a particular activity of men. Those can't bring glory to God, for it's still an absolutely true premise. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. The name that we wear not only is significant, but we appreciate by way of summary some of the following concepts and ideas. As we reflect on these things we've learned tonight, we have noted that the name that is worn is important. In addition to that, we've also noted that in spiritual matters, the name is significant. Colossians 3.17 has been and will continue to be our guiding theme on that idea. And the final two thoughts we noticed. Collectively, we as a church should wear a divinely appointed name, thankfully, Happily, joyously we do. But not only that, individually, we wear the name Christian no more and no less. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Is there any other name in which a person can be saved? Peter said no. And in Acts chapter 3, when that lame man at the beautiful gate there at Solomon's porch was raised to be able to walk again, in verse 16 of that chapter, Peter expressly said, It's not by me, but it's by the name that this man is raised. What name do you and I wear? It's true we live in a world of confusion, but it not, need not be that way. Religiously, God has given us all the answers. When we then seek the church that's identified as the church of truth, we look for one that has the right name. And we look for one whose members wear the scriptural name Christian and nothing else. This evening, are you a Christian? Have you been born again in the precious blood of the Lamb? We are told in Revelation 7:14 that on that great and final day of judgment, those who are left standing, those who shall enjoy the eternity of heaven, are those that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. If you haven't been washed, you need to. You need to come confessing sin and appreciating that upon the previous belief and repentance, you are a candidate for baptism, and joyously we could assist you in it. But if you've become a member of the body but haven't been true and faithful to that calling, you have let the name become tarnished and marred because you haven't lived up to it. Realize you need to come back to that first love and proudly again present that name to all about you because it represents Christ. 
If we could assist anyone tonight in your call and obedience to the gospel, let us do that, even while together we stand and while we sing.